Okay. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. Today, once again, I'm joined by my partner, George Backrack. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. We like to say, wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can call in. If you missed the presentation, though, you can listen to a recording at three different locations on our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast at podbean.com, Surety Today, and on our microsite at suretytoday.net. program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and we appreciate your support and ask that you uh, pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. And if you have any suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. If you have any technical issues during the call, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. Now, we just muted the lines uh, during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today, we're going to talk about the surety and set-off rights, the bad and the good. With that, I'll turn it over to George. The surety's rights and ability to reduce its exposure to loss may be affected in a number of ways by the obligees, the principals, the payment bond claimants, other third parties, and the surety's exercise of their equitable and contractual set-off rights, including the surety's subrogation rights to the set-off rights of the obligee and the principal. As the title to this presentation suggests, the existence of set-off rights may be bad for the surety or they may be good for the surety. We will address both situations. However, before we do so, we will define a party's equitable set-off rights and set-off rights under a written contract, and we will compare a party's set-off rights to a party's common law and contractual recoupment rights. Set-off rights exist between two parties when each party is a debtor to and a creditor of the other party. The definition of set-off rights is that as between party A and party B, Party B has the right to set off against Party A's claim one or more independent transactions that constitute separate causes of action apart from Party A's claim. This can occur only when the two parties' rights are mutual, that is, between the same parties and their own rights and capacities, and the amounts owed to each are due and payable. The set-off is not a part of a debt, but an equitable remedy to secure the payment of a debt. The objective of letting a party exercise its set-off rights is to prevent a circuity of actions by allowing parties that owe each other money to apply their mutual debts against each other, thereby avoiding the absurdity of making Party A pay party, party B pay Party A's claim when Party A owes Party B money on another transaction. The definition of recoupment rights is that the claims of each of the parties arise out of the same contract or transaction between the parties. A recoupment is a defense to a claim, not a separate affirmative claim for damages. For example, under a contract, Party A claims 100000 but Party B claims a recoupment defense under the contract of $50,000. If both prevail, Party B would owe Party A the sum of $50,000. Today we will be addressing set-off and not recoupment. We will divide this presentation into three sections. The first concerns those instances when the surety's loss may increase because of another party's exercise of its set-off rights to the surety's detriment. 
The second concerns those instances when a surety may exercise its own set of rights to reduce its loss. The third concerns those instances when a surety may be subrogated to the rights of another, an obligee or its principal, that results in the surety's ability to reduce its loss. In all of these situations, the facts are substantively critical to the legal analysis as to whether set-off rights exist in the first instance and may therefore be exercised by one or both parties to the transactions. Mike? Okay, George, thanks. So set-off rights can be a double-edged sword. On the one hand, set-off rights can benefit the surety by extending the surety's reach to additional funds to help reduce losses. On the other hand, set-off rights can be used against the surety to its detriment. In this section, I will discuss the use or limitation of set-off rights to the detriment of the surety. Generally, there are two primary forms of detriment that set-off rights may cause. One, through the exercise of set-off rights, a party may avoid all or part of its obligations to the surety, but the surety's obligations under its bonds to that party are not decreased. Or two, through the exercise of set-off rights, a party may take actions that deny the surety certain rights, such as the surety subrogation rights, which results in an increase in the surety's loss. So let's take a look at some of the detrimental uses of set-off. First, let's discuss the obligee's detrimental use of set-off rights. The obligee may be owed an obligation or a debt from the principal. Whether it's a contract obligation or a debt on a contract not bonded by the surety or maybe a tax debt if the obligee is a governmental entity, then the obligee may attempt to set off against the debt um, owed to the principal by denying payment to the surety of the bonded contract funds. Generally, the surety that has performed under its performance bond may avoid such a set-off. The theory is that the surety's right to, perform, to return performance, i.e., the payment of the bonded contract funds, takes priority over the obligee's non-contract-related set-offs. However, a surety that has only incurred losses under its payment bond may not be able to prevent the obligee's set-off. In United States versus Muncie Trust Company of Washington, D.C., 332 U.S. 234, 1947, the Supreme Court ruled that a surety who has only paid payment bond claimants is not subrogated to the government obligee's rights and the government may exercise its set-off rights against the remaining contract funds to the detriment of the surety. In Muncie Trust, the principal completed six projects but failed to pay all of its laborers and materialmen. The surety stepped in and paid the labor, laborers and materialmen under its payment bonds. The government was holding retainage on those six completed projects. Now, this same principal bid on and was awarded another contract with the government but failed to enter into that contract, forcing the government to complete the project at a higher cost, thereby damaging the government. The government set off its loss on the failed contract against the retainage it was holding on the completed projects to the detriment of the surety. A majority of reported decisions follow the Muncie Trust uh, case and uphold the obligee's right to set off unrelated debts against the bonded contract funds when the surety losses are only payment bond losses. However, there are a handful of cases dealing with state law that have held that regardless of whether the surety's subrogation rights arise from payment bond obligations or performance bond obligations, an obligee may not exercise its set-off rights ahead of the surety. And we can provide a list of those cases, uh, some of those cases uh, afterwards. 
Moreover, the restatement third of surety shipping guarantee in section 31 expressly rejects the Muncie Trust holding and takes the position that the surety's equitable subrogation right is superior to an obligee's right to set off a principal's debt against the bonded contract funds, even if the surety is only a payment bond surety. The reporter's note to section 31 at comment D states, this section rejects the doctrine articulated in Muncie. The Muncie Trust Doctrine has been severely criticized since its inception. Moreover, the courts have severely limited the scope of the Muncie Trust Doctrine. So the question is whether the applicable court that you're dealing with will adopt the decision of the Supreme Court in Muncie Trust or the position of the restatement of suretyship. There are also some bond forms that limit the obligee's right to set off. One such form is the AIA A312-2010 performance bond, which specifically prohibits the obligee from reducing or setting off against the bonded contract funds. Section, section 7 of the A312 provides, quote, the surety shall not be liable to the obligee or others for obligations of the contractor that are unrelated to the construction contract, and the balance of the contract price shall not be reduced or offset on account of any such unrelated obligations, unquote. Okay, so let's look at um, some other uses of set-off that are detrimental to the surety. Um, let's start with banks. Let's take a scenario where the bonded contract funds are paid to the principal and are deposited in the principal's bank account. As is typical, the bank may have a variety of lending or credit facilities with the principal, a line of credit, an equipment loan, credit cards, etc. If the principal owes the bank money under one or more of those credit facilities, the bank may, set, may seek to exercise its set-off rights against the bonded contract funds deposited in the principal's bank account. In this situation, the bank's set-off rights will prevail over the surety unless the bank had notice of the principal's default and the surety's rights to the funds. Now, in jurisdictions where there's a trust fund statute like we have here in Maryland, um, or where the courts recognize the surety's trust fund rights in an indemnity agreement, the surety may be able to defeat the set-off rights of the bank. Let's look at um, governmental entities as another detrimental set-off situation. In many instances, the obligee will be a governmental entity. Upon a default of the principal, other agencies of the governmental obligee may assert interest in the bonded contract funds, and the obligee may exercise its set-off rights to deduct all or a portion of the bonded contract funds to satisfy the interests of the other agencies. In most cases, the performing surety through its equitable subrogation rights will be able to assert a superior interest in the bonded contract funds, like we mentioned earlier. However, in the case of the Department of Labor claims under the Davis-Bacon Act or the various State Department of Labor prevailing wage statutes, the surety subrogation rights may not be enough to stop the governmental obligee's set-off. Some courts have taken the position that once the Department of Labor demands that the government obligee set aside portions of the bonded contract funds, such funds are no longer part of the bonded contract and the surety subrogation rights do not apply. Some of these cases are decided under the Muncie Trust Doctrine, distinguishing between payment bond subrogation and performance bond subrogation, but others, without really much analysis, simply accord the Department of Labor set-aside demands some, some form of super-priority. These cases make little sense because the government has no liability to laborers, unpaid labor claims would not trump a performing surety subrogation rights, and the statutory rights are no different than the tax authorization statutes where, surety, where sureties routinely have superior rights over taxing authorities. 
the bottom line is that the sureties must be aware that there are a handful of cases out there that have given the Department of Labor Davis-Bacon set-off claim priority over the completing surety. Thus, it's always a good idea to figure out as soon as possible where the defaulting principle stands with Davis-Bacon compliance when the surety is considering its options. While numerous parties may attempt to exercise their set-off rights against the surety to the surety's detriment, the surety has only three parties against whom it may exercise its own set-off rights, namely those parties with whom the surety has a contractual relationship or third-party beneficiary obligations. We have not done an exhaustive research project to find cases that fit the following situations that I want to discuss. Rather, we hope to raise your antenna as to the possible instances when a surety may exercise its own equitable or contractual set-off rights to reduce its exposure to loss. One note of caution, however, if the party against whom the surety is attempting to assert its set-off rights is in bankruptcy, the automatic stay of Section 362A7 requires a party to retain, obtain relief from the automatic stay in order to exercise the right to set off of any debt owing to the debtor that arose before the commencement of the case against any claim against the debtor. Now, the first contractual party is the obligee. The surety and the principal may have executed multiple bonds in favor of an obligee. The obligee may have defaulted the principal on a contract covered by bond A, and the obligee and the surety may have entered into a takeover agreement with respect to the surety's performance of the bond A contract and project. Subsequently, the obligee may default the principal on a contract covered by bond B and make a claim against the surety. In the meantime, the surety may have performed under the takeover agreement for the bond A contract and project, but the obligee refuses to pay the surety the contract funds under the takeover agreement. Question, may the surety deny the obligee's claim under bond B due to the obligee's breach of the takeover agreement for bond A as a result of the obligee's failure to pay the contract funds to the surety? This is effectively a surety set-off claim. I don't owe you, Mr. Obligee, under bond B, because of your failure to pay me the surety under the takeover agreement for performing under bond A. Depending upon the performance bond language in the particular jurisdiction, there are risks to a surety in denying an obligee's claim under bond B and failing to perform. So the surety has to be correct with respect to the obligee's default and failure to pay the surety under the takeover agreement for the surety's performance under bond A. Now, with respect to the principal, because of the extensive rights that a surety may have against a principal under an indemnity agreement to attain reimbursement for its losses under the bonds, such as payments made in good faith, the right to settle claims, the right to demand collateral, and many others, there appear to be only a few instances when a principal is actually owed a debt from the surety and can therefore reduce its reimbursement obligations to the surety for the surety's bond losses. Four come to mind, however, and, and either or both the principal and the surety would want to have a set-off right to each of their detriment and benefit. First, the principal may be entitled to a premium refund from the surety on, for one or more of the bonds. The surety does not want to pay the premium refund money to the principal when the principal owes money to the surety for the surety's bond losses. 
Second, the surety may be an insurer of the principal, and the principal may have a valid claim against the surety insurer under an insurance policy, such as a principal's claim for $100,000 against its CGL policy. If the surety insurer are the same entity as required by the mutuality concept for equitable set-off, then the surety insurer may set off the 100000 it would otherwise owe the principal under the CGL policy to reduce its surety loss under the bonds by $100,000. The surety insurer should not have to pay the $100,000 CGL claim to the principal and then hope to get the funds back after successfully pursuing its indemnity and reimbursement claim for an amount in excess of $100,000. Third, if the surety is found to be in bad faith for its handling of the claims under one bond and the principal obtains a judgment against the surety, the surety could reduce its obligations under the bad faith judgment to the principal on other bonds executed by the same principal and the surety where the surety acted in good faith and incurred bond losses. Finally, and this really does occur, a subcontractor principal may have claims against the surety on bonds that the surety executes for another unrelated general contractor principal, but it also may have obligations to reimburse the surety on other bonds executed by the same subcontractor principal and the surety to various obligees. As a claimant, the subcontractor principal may have a valid claim against the out-of-business general contractor and, the sure, and its common surety under bond A. But as the surety's principal on other bonded subcontracts, the subcontractor principal may owe the surety money as a result of the defaults under those other bonded subcontracts. The surety does not have to pay the claimant subcontractor principal on bond A when the claimant subcontractor is the surety's subcontractor principal that is obligation to indemnify and reimburse the surety on other bonded contracts. Because of the contractual relationship between the principal and the surety, some indemnity agreements have a written provision in the indemnity agreement that authorizes a surety's contractual right of set-off in circumstances such as those described above. Finally, whether it is called a set-off or recoupment, a surety may have a defense against a payment bond claimant when the claimant subcontractor or first or second tier subcontractor or suppliers have failed to perform or supply defective materials on a bonded project. A different situation arises when a payment bond claimant may have a valid claim against the surety on bond A, for example, for $100,000, but the surety may have a valid claim against the payment bond claimant on a separate bonded contract, bond B, for example, for a surety loss of $50,000 on bond B. That loss may be as a result of the payment bond claimant's failure to perform the work for the surety's general contractor, its failure to supply the correct materials and equipment, or for supplying defective uh, materials and equipment. Both parties may have set-off rights that may be enforced to either their benefit or detriment, and the surety may be able to exercise its set-off rights to reduce its payment on bond A to the claimant to the amount of $50,000. However, the party claiming an affirmative recovery against the other party would have to assert an affirmative claim in any litigation to recover more than the set-off amount. There is one possible caveat to this issue with respect to a payment bond claimant. 
and that is whether the surety has collected bonded contract funds from the contract covered by Bond A that are subject to the jurisdiction's trust fund statute. We have not researched the issues for today, but if the bonded contract funds collected by the surety on Bond A are impressed with the trust for the benefit of the payment bond claimant, the surety may not be able to set off against that claim amounts that may be due to the surety from another project such as Bond B. Finally, the third issue we want to address is the surety's subrogation rights to the set-off rights of others. The surety may assert its subrogation rights to the claims to the rights of a party uh, it paid or for whom it performed an obligation under the bonds, and they are the obligee, the principal, and payment bond claimants. Many of these issues are covered in depth in Chapter 14 of the Contract Bond Surety Subrogation Rights um, in a chapter called Common Obligee Theory and Other Set-Off Rights, the surety's subrogation rights to the obligees or the principal's set-off rights. We will address those surety subrogation rights next. Mike? Okay. Thanks, George. I want to talk about the common obligee theory under this section. It's generally recognized that a performing surety, through its equitable right of subrogation, may exercise the set-off rights of the obligee. So under the common obligee theory, a surety may, under certain circumstances, assert its subrogation rights in order to exercise the obligee's set-off rights against the principal to recover funds the obligee would otherwise owe to the principal under other unrelated bond or non-bonded contracts. Using the set-off rights to extend the surety's reach beyond the bonded contract may help reduce the surety's losses. Under the common obligee theory, the surety steps into the shoes of the obligee and is entitled to assert any rights that the obligee may possess against the principal, even rights on other contracts. A simple example demonstrates the principle. The obligee and the principal in this example enter into two contracts, contract A to build a school, contract B to build a shopping center. The school, pro the school project, contract A, is bonded by a surety, but contract B is not bonded. The principal completes the shopping center, the contract B project, and is owed 100000 by the obligee. But then the principal defaults on the school project, contract A, and the surety steps in to complete contract A. The surety has paid all of the Contract A funds but incurs a loss of 100000 Because the surety performed and completed Contract A, it is subrogated to all rights of the obligee with respect to the principal. In this example, one right that the obligee would have if the surety did not perform is the right of set-off between Contract A and B with the principal. If there were no surety in this scenario, the obligee would have completed Contract A and incurred the $100,000 loss, the same as the surety and would have said to itself, I owe the principal 100000 on contract B, but the principal owes me 100000 on contract A, so I will set off the two amounts and keep the 100000 owed on B to cover my losses on A, and the principal gets nothing but owes nothing. With the surety present, the surety simply does what the obligee would have done. It collects the 100000 on contract B to offset the surety's loss on contract A. The, contract, uh, the concept is simple enough in theory, and it serves to further the purposes of both subrogation and set-off. However, in practice, it is not quite so simple. Some courts have recognized and allowed the common obligee theory, and there's a number of cases, and we can, we can send those sites to you later on. Other courts have rejected it. Some courts reject the theory because they take an overly restrictive view of subrogation and hold 
that the surety subrogation rights are limited solely to the bonded contract and the bonded contract funds. And there's a couple of cases out of the Fourth Circuit that take that approach. Based on the case law, there are a number of issues that can potentially affect whether a given jurisdiction will recognize the theory of the common obligee set-off. Some of those factors are, for example, in jurisdictions where the distinction is recognized between the subrogation rights of a payment bond surety versus a performance bond surety, uh, payment bond surety may not have the necessary subrogation rights to obtain the obligee set-off rights. Um, another factor, the surety must have a loss on the bonded contract for which it asserts its subrogation rights, and that's true just in general of having subrogation. The obligee must owe the principal on the other project. For a fourth factor, the obligee must be a mere stakeholder with respect to the other contract funds. Thus, if the obligee has independent rights against the principal, for example, the IRS seeking taxes, that may result in the rejection of the common obligee theory. The obligee must actually possess set-off rights against the principal. Sometimes contractual or statutory rights might limit or prevent set-off. In that circumstance, the surety trying to claim through that obligee would not be able to do so. The principal, another factor, the principal uh, would, would have to not be disputing the obligee's rights in order for the theory to apply. So if there's a dispute between the principal and the obligee on the other job as to whether the principal owes the obligee anything, such as the principal challenging uh, the default or asserting change orders or affirmative claims, those facts may result in rejection of the application of the common obligee theory, at least until those disputes are resolved. And finally, the principal's trustee in bankruptcy, um, if there is one, may derail the uh, common obligee theory. If the principal's bankruptcy trustee has superior rights over the obligee to the funds, the surety set-off rights under the common obligee theory would not be successful. There is a case, um, Larbar, In Ray Larbar, out of the Sixth Circuit, I believe, where, where the uh, surety was able to exercise its, um, its subrogation rights through, through the common obligee theory ahead of the trustee. So it just depends on the jurisdiction. So the takeaway here is that the surety through the common obligee theory may have rights against other funds to help offset losses on the bonded job if the common obligee has set-off rights that can be enforced. There are a number of potential hurdles to utilizing this doctrine, so it's not a certainty, but it's definitely worth pursuing. George? The surety also may have the ability to compel its principal and third-party um, payment bond claimants to exercise their set-off rights. The surety may compel its principal to exercise its set-off rights against an obligee or payment bond claimant to reduce the surety's liability. This is especially true when the principal is insolvent and yet is owed money by the obligee or payment bond claimant. The surety would want to set off the money owed to the principal by the obligee or payment bond claimant to reduce the surety's bond obligations to either one. The theory is why should the insolvent principal or his bankruptcy trustee get the payment owed to the principal debtor when the surety may incur a loss to that obligee or payment bond claimant as a result of the principal's failure to pay either one of them. Uh, there are some limitations, such as if the principal is solvent and objects to the surety's exercise of the principal's set-off rights, where the surety has not exhausted collateral that it, ha it has obtained from the pr principal to protect the surety from loss. 
Furthermore, the same really applies to payment bond claimants. The surety may also compel, on the other side, a payment bond claimant to set off any funds that would otherwise be owed to the principal for unrelated debts to reduce the surety's liability to that payment bond claimant. Again, if the payment bond claimant owes money to the principal and yet makes a claim against the surety under the payment bond for the principal, the surety would want the payment bond claimant to pay itself first from the amounts it is holding for the principal before the surety pays the balance of that obligation, if any. Again, one last thing for me, these are very fact-intensive cases, and, and you really have to look at all the facts to see whether you can conveniently fit in um, and exercise or compel the exercise of set-off rights, or whether those set-off rights can be compelled against you. Mike? Okay, before I um, open up the line for any questions, I wanted to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, May 14th at 1230 Eastern Time. At that time, I will present the topic of the Surety's Reservation of Rights. We'll talk about why we do it, what we do, and um, how to do it, and what are some of the issues relating to the Reservation of Rights. Upcoming events in the surety industry, the Southern Surety Claims Conference will be held in Clearwater, Florida on April 17th through the 20th. Come join me for Surety Fun in the Sun. The Philadelphia Surety Claims Lunch will be May 16th, and the Chicago Surety Claims Lunch is May 17th. Okay, let me open up the lines here. All right, any questions? You know, questions that we can actually answer. We don't want to be stumped. Anybody? These, you know, again, one of the things we tried to focus on in this presentation is not necessarily the answer, although we hope we gave some, but to keep your antenna up. Um, because anytime you owe somebody money, you have to think about whether there's a reason not to pay, um, a valid reason not to pay, and sometimes that valid reason is that they're holding money against the person that you are supposed to be paying for, uh, and they shouldn't get that benefit. So if there are no questions, we thank you for attending. Okay, everybody, take care. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you everyone. Bye-bye.